The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening, we're going to be continuing our series on the life of Elijah. We're going to be picking up in 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 17 and reading through verse 24. This is the fourth uh, sermon in a series on the life of Elijah. Last week, we saw how Elijah was called by God to go out to a widow in Zarephath, where he was going to provide for Elijah and for this widow. And we pick up in verse 17 with the rest of the story. It says this, After this, the son of the woman, the widow, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Looking at this passage, I couldn't help but notice verse 18. It's just been ringing in my ears that this woman, when she is faced with heartbreaking suffering, the death of her son responds with this cry to Elijah, what have you against me? What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now she's asking this question, what have you against me, O man of God? But it's not really a question, is it? It sounds to me more like an accusation. You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. She believes this terrible thing that has happened is because Elijah has tattled on her, has brought her sin to God's attention, and now God has taken her son's life. 
her suffering has exposed probably what had been there for quite a long time. That is a deep, hidden, under-the-surface shame. You know, suffering has a way of doing that, doesn't it? The first question we ask when we suffer is, why me? Why, why me? And when in doubt, many of us rely on the timeless explanation that bad things happen to bad people, and really bad things happen to really bad people. And so there's three questions that I want to ask, because as I read this woman's response to this heart-rending situation of the loss of her son, that suffering, what I'm noticing is that it exposes a deep, deep, and hidden shame. Here are the three questions. What are the sources of shame? Second, what are the dangers of stuffing our shame? And third, how does God deal with our shame? First, what's the source of shame? Unlike guilt, shame has multiple sources. And so it's harder to nail down, harder to identify. Dr. Ed Welch says it this way, while shame and guilt are close companions, they're not identical. Shame is the more common and broader of the two. And in Scripture, you'll find shame and its synonyms, nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, defilement, ten times more often than you'll find the word guilt. Guilt is narrower. It's legal. It has to do with personal offense, personal sin. But shame is broader. Shame has many sources. You may feel shame for the things that you have done wrong. That's how it's similar to guilt. But you could also feel shame for the things or the wrongs that have been done to you. See, shame is much broader. You can also feel shame because you are associated with a group of people who are disgraced. Or you could feel shame simply because you are suffering the effects of living in a broken creation, a broken world. And so as we look at this text, we can discern several possibilities of shame. One source is personal sin. We saw it right there in verse 18. You have come to bring my sin to remembrance. This is what this woman fears. That somehow her sin has been brought to remembrance before the Lord. She has a scrupulous conscience. And often those with a very sensitive conscience find this source of shame as overwhelming. For the self-assured often with a prideful disposition, they minimize this source of shame of personal responsibility and divert it to external sources. But we always have to keep in mind that one of our sources of shame is personal sin and failure. Another possible source could be one's life situation. This woman is a widow in a culture where family and children meant everything. And she was most likely poor. And poverty brings with it its own unique sense of shame, of being left out, not able to enjoy the securities and pleasures that others have that can leave you feeling less deserving, second class, not worthy. 
Another source of shame could be the result of your association. This widow is from Zarephath in Sidon. As Chris Walker said, she's from Idolatryville in Paganland. She is associated with people who have committed idolatry over and over and over again. Atrocities. Jezebel, who is now the queen of Israel, the husband of the wicked king Ahab, is a Baal-worshipping evangelist. And she is hunting down the prophets of God and the priests of God to slaughter them. And she knows, this widow of Zarephath knows, that Elijah is a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh is not happy with all the idolatry in the land and the Baal worship. And Jezebel is her king. And so one source of shame is the result of your association of being associated with a people group that is somehow disgraced. See, there are many sources of shame This text implies at least three. Personal shame, situational, life situational shame associated with certain people. How does this apply? You and I often have an easier time identifying the source of guilt, but often have a difficult time identifying in the source of shame. Can you identify the source of your shame? Was it an embarrassing label placed on you in school or on the playground or on the athletic field? Were you one of those children that was last picked to be on people's teams? Did you grow up with an angry or unpredictable parent that berated you and told you that you were worthless? Maybe you feel a deep sense of shame over the loss of a job, or that you were passed over for a promotion, or maybe the betrayal of a spouse, a financial reversal, an addiction, a physical handicap, a mental illness. Maybe you carry shame because of some kind of sexual violation. See, identifying the source of our shame is harder than we might expect, but is an important first step if we are to rid ourselves of shame. As Welch goes on to clarify, certainly our censors for guilt and shame are fallible. They can be silent when they should be going off. They can also sound false alarms, but false alarm or not, when we hear that alarm of shame, we must do something. The alarm of shame does not turn off automatically. And the source of shame is many, and shame often flies under the radar until suffering comes into our life, like it did with this widow. Then all of a sudden, that shame that was hidden is now exposed. And it registers on our conscience. And we must deal with it. That leads to our second point. What is the danger of stuffing our shame? Unresolved shame darkens every major area of life and draws us down into every manner of death. We see that in this passage. First, shame darkens this woman's relationship with others. Notice what the widow says to Elijah. What have you against me? In her suffering, she assumes that Elijah must have something against her. She's fearful, defensive, some might even say paranoid, toward a man who has shown her nothing but kindness. 
Elijah has shown her no ill will. He has lived peacefully in her home. He has provided her special kindness and tenderness. But her grief exposes her shame. See, shame does that. If you feel you are uniquely deserving of punishment, if you feel you are uniquely defiled and unworthy, you assume other people think that about you as well. And so you can begin to act out on that. If I feel this way, if I feel crummy about myself, other people must feel crummy about me too. And the ironic thing is that the one thing you're trying to avoid, which is rejection, you actually bring upon yourself as you transfer those crummy feelings and accuse others of having crummy feelings toward you that they may not have. See, this is what shame does. It darkens our relationships with others. And it actually amplifies our pain. Because people start saying, well, what's wrong with that person? Why are they so defensive? Why are they paranoid? Maybe, And, and now they are concerned. Even though initially our fears were groundless. See, how does your shame needlessly alienate you from others? Shame darkens our relationships with others. But that's not all. Shame darkens our relationship with God. She says, You, O man of God, you have come to bring my sin to remembrance. To whose remembrance? To God's remembrance. That's the only context that makes sense of her statement. That God now remembers my sin. You told the man in charge. You tattled on me. And now I'm in trouble. And now I'm suffering. And yes, if she knows anything by now, she knows Yahweh has power. He is in charge. Not Baal. He is the one that has been providing her with a jar that does not run out of flour and a jug that does not run out of oil. And she is right that God is in charge. And Elijah doesn't debate with her on that point. Elijah's response actually indicates that he agrees that God is in charge, which is why he turns and appeals to God. But it seems that because of her suffering, because of the pain that she is going through and her shame, she can only sense God's anger and wrath. And she has lost sight of God's grace and his mercy, even though His mercy and his grace had been abundantly seen through daily provision during this famine so that she didn't run out of oil and flour. See, she should have been convinced that God's mercy is more than sufficient, that his grace never runs dry, but her grief has convinced her otherwise. And she seems convinced that God's grace toward her has run out. Even as the jar still stands with flour and with oil, her grief has exposed that she believes God's wrath is more powerful than his mercy. His mercy seems exhaustible, but his wrath and his anger inexhaustible. That's what suffering does. And in our shame, we are tempted to believe that we 
can exhaust God's mercy and grace. That all he has for us is anger and wrath. And notice how Elijah is not convinced that God's grace toward this woman has run out. And so he pleads for God's continuing mercy, and he appeals for God to intervene. He says, Lord, have you brought calamity even upon this widow by taking her son? He appeals to God's mercy. How does this apply? Never discount the importance of faithful friendship. What do I mean by that? We all need friends who, in a certain season of life, when we are struggling with weak faith, they have strong faith. That is why we need one another. That's why we need the body of Christ. See, God, the truth is, God's grace is inexhaustible. Yes, sin is real, but redemption is just as real. Yes, yes, sin and wrath are real, but so is forgiveness and mercy. And when we are stuck in our shame, all we can see is the negative. And we need people in the community of Christ, in the community of believers, to say, no, God's mercy is not running out. It is still here for you to pray for us when we are riddled with doubt, when we are exhausted. How does this apply? Is there anyone in this congregation that is weak in faith, that is struggling to believe in the goodness of God? Pray for them. If you are confident in God and his goodness, don't boast about that. Don't brag about it. Don't worry. A time will come when you will probably despair of God's goodness and you will need to lean on them who can remind you, no, God is good, he is merciful, and his grace never runs out. See, shame darkens every aspect of life, our relationship with others, our relationship with God. We need the community of Christ to remind us that God's grace never runs out. But shame also does something else. It draws us down into every manner of death. Notice her anxiety. O man of God, you have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. See, this crisis, losing her only son, she's a widow already, caused her to assume that since God has finally remembered who I am, he's seen what I've done, he's seen my sin, and now I'm paying the price. And what's the price? The price is death. Death. Now, what's remarkable is that this woman is not a theologian. She's a Sidonian, a foreigner, an outsider, probably had grown up as an idolater. And no one had told her that the wages of sin is death, yet she knew it deep down in her psyche because the law of God was written on her heart, just as it is every other human heart, that the wages of sin is death. And there is shame. And the companion to shame is death. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. But God said, for in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And what's interesting is they didn't fall down dead physically that day. But after the fall, they hid because of what? Shame. Shame is a companion of death. They experienced death that very day 
in the form of shame. They experience death that, that very day, the same way a tree branch experiences death the day it's cut off from the trunk. Death is immediate, just not yet completed. See, death, like cutting off a tree branch from its trunk, is being separated from God. Death is separation from God. It's, it's being cut off from God in some manner of speaking. And shame may come to you because you've separated yourself from God because of your sin, or shame may come to you because you're a victim of someone who has separated themselves from God and are acting out in their sin against you, or you struggle with shame because you're, it's an effect of living in a cosmos broken by sin, separated from God, and yet to be restored. See, death always latches itself to shame. Living under shame, you will always feel like death. Either you deserve to die or you want to die. That's what shame does. My earliest experience with real crippling shame was in fifth grade. Attempting to impress my friends who had introduced me to dirty pictures and dirty words, I decided it would be cool during indoor recess if I took out a blank piece of notebook paper and listed all the dirty words and drew all the dirty pictures I could imagine. The excitement I felt from being accepted from my friends melted away the moment Mrs. Stevens looked up from her desk. Ashamed, I immediately crumpled my paper into a tight ball and nonchalantly walked over to the wastebasket and threw it away. I wanted to distance myself from any evidence of my crime. And I mistakenly thought that the garbage can would make any evidence irretrievable and impossible to link back to myself. I was wrong. After I returned to my desk, I watched in horror as my teacher, Mrs. Stevens, walked over to the wastebasket plucked out my sin-stained paper and slowly unraveled it as she walked back to her desk. Before she even turned around and sat down in her chair, I knew I was a dead man. Shame and death are companions. Calling me up to her desk, she asked, David, do your parents know that you enjoy drawing such pictures and using such words? Terrified, I responded, uh, I don't know. To which she responded, well, let's find out. She attached another piece of paper to mine with a note. Mr. and Mrs. Kiefer, I wanted to make you aware of what David decided to work on during indoor recess. He was unsure if you were aware of his capabilities. Please sign and have David return this to me tomorrow so that I know you are aware of the type of work David chooses to do during his free time. Sincerely, Mrs. Stevens. I cannot tell you the sense of doom and shame I felt. For the first time in my life, I literally wanted to die more than I wanted to get on that bus going home. It was the longest, darkest bus ride. I felt like 
a heavy cloak had been placed on me and I couldn't throw it off. I was unable to breathe. I had defiled myself. And when I showed my mother, I had defiled her. I had tainted her. And then when I showed my father when he got home later from work, I realized I defiled the whole family name. See, the result of shame is death. All manners of death. The source of shame is broad. In my case, my shame grew out of personal shame, personal sin. But shame can grow out of more soils than just personal guilt. It can grow out of the soil of abuse, abandonment, betrayal. It can grow out of living in a broken world, having broken bodies, suffering from mental illness or infertility or a handicap. But here's the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ can redeem all shame, no matter its source. And the second half of the widow's story, we learn how God deals with shame. In verses 19 through 24, we see God tenderly initiates with the shamed. The emphasis throughout this passage is not on the woman reaching up to God loving God, but God reaching down to this woman and having mercy on her. Chris Walker said it so clearly last week. The emphasis is not on this woman's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness and his goodness. She's angry. She's accusing Elijah of all these bad things. But the Lord is the one who's having mercy and grace upon her. Jesus pointed out this very fact in Luke chapter 4, 25. He says, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine was over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman woman who was a widow. Did you catch that? Who did God prefer? Who did God take tender initiative with? The least deserving, the most unworthy. He shows tender compassion by taking initiative with her. She had done nothing to deserve it. The Lord takes initiative, tender initiative with the shamed. So if you are feeling shame, don't assume the Lord will treat your shame like everyone else does that he'll avoid you, that he'll just ridicule you, that he'll say, well, you must have done something to deserve it. But the Lord is merciful and gracious, and he takes tender initiative with the shamed. How? Through sending his representatives to the shamed. God sent Elijah to the widow. God sent Elijah to to Zarephath in Sidon, far, far away. See, God could have provided, I suppose, for this widow miraculously without Elijah. He could have rigged her jar of oil and flour, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he sends his representatives who become his mouthpiece of truth, who incarnate his grace and his love. Notice, Elijah's not just speaking God's word of truth. He's incarnating grace. God is slow to anger. 
And he's abounding in loving kindness. And Elijah incarnates the very character of God when this widow is accusing him of being against her. He does not respond by arguing like, why, why, why do you think I have anything against you? I've never had anything against you. No, what does he do? He absorbs her anger and instead appeals to God on her behalf. He grieves with her. That's what he does. He grieves with her and he carries her burden to God when she does not have the confidence or faith or knowledge to know how to carry that burden to God herself. He asks in verse 19, give me your son. In other words, he asks for this woman's heaviest burden, the despairing reality that my last family member is dead. And he carries her burden upstairs to his own bed and he pleads for God's mercy. One of the greatest gifts you can have It's just one friend who walks with you through suffering, praying for you, appealing to God on your behalf, representing his grace to you. When your patience is thin. Church, when you weep and pray and carry one another's burdens, you are doing God's work. You are becoming a very powerful agent of redemption in his hand, like Elijah was. You represent him and cause others to experience the grace of our God. See, God takes tender initiative with the shame, then the way he does it is by sending his representatives, people who speak his word and incarnate his grace. And second, God shows the shamed that he has power and his power is for them, not against them. Now, sometimes we see that God's power is for us immediately, like this widow, right? He heals her dead son and raises him from the dead through Elijah's prayers, despite that the widow never believed such a thing could happen, he does it. That God can show us his power in those ways. He doesn't always do that. Why he does it in this situation and not in other situations, I don't know. God has a bigger will, and if it aligns with his will, he will do it. We do know as we read the larger story here that God was trying to make a bigger lesson known, which is that he is sovereign over all. Baal is not. Baal is limited to one nation. Yahweh is sovereign over all nations. Baal is limited in his power to help in areas of infertility and weather, but the Lord has power over life and death. And maybe the Lord just wanted that message to be declared in Sidon. I don't know. But sometimes the Lord shows his power is for us immediately right away. But that's not how he always shows his power that he's for us. Sometimes God shows his power that he's for us less immediately. Sometimes he says, trust me, even when it appears I'm not using my power for you, to bless you. Sometimes he asks us just to remember what he has done in the past. Remember is a huge word in the Old Testament. Remember. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Trust me for the present and the future. See, the main point of this story is not to teach us, if only I have enough faith, God will show his power to me now, maybe by a miracle. No, the point of this story is God's grace is for those who are suffering deeply and they are stuck in their guilt and shame. And even if it seems like God is not doing anything immediately to relieve your shame, he's still calling you to trust him. 
He's still calling you to trust that his power and his grace is sufficient, even if you cannot see it. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I'd like to, but it's getting increasingly difficult, Dave. Or maybe you're saying, how can you expect me to do that after what I've been through? How can you expect me to wait for God's power to show up in my life? He seems to play favorites with others, but overlooks me. And the only answer I have for you that can encourage you to wait with hopeful patience is to see how this story of Elijah and this widow is part of a bigger story God is telling. See, Jesus is the greater Elijah. And like Elijah, Jesus, his aim is not to rebuke you in your grief and correct you in your grief, but to weep with you in your grief and appeal to the Father on your behalf for new life. And like Elijah, his aim is to carry your heaviest burden to the Father and in compassion to weep with you. But unlike Elijah, it cost Jesus something. In fact, it cost him everything. See, Elijah merely laid himself upon the boy, symbolically becoming dead like the boy so that the boy could become alive. But Jesus actually, truly laid himself out in death. And he not only appealed on behalf of the shamed, he associated with the shamed. He too was despised and rejected. And in fact, he changed places with the shamed. He who knew no reason for shame, no reason to be vulnerable and to shame, took the place of those who have every reason for shame who are vulnerable again and again to shameful things. See, Jesus took our place. And why did he do it? So that he could defeat our shame, no matter its source, to free us from, a, from it. That was his mission. And that's why Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what good news for anyone stuck in shame. That because of the cross of Jesus Christ, shame will not ultimately win out. If you trust in Jesus, your shame will not only be interrupted temporarily, it will be defeated. Jesus proves that God is for us, not against us. Because he takes our shame so that we don't have to bear it. He delights not in shaming us. He delights in defeating our shame. So even if it does not appear that God is intervening right now or immediately to end your shame, you can have great confidence by remembering the power of the cross, the reality of the cross, that God will ultimately one day fully and completely heal and defeat your shame. And I would go a step further and even say, in fact, watch out for God to transform your shame into a unique glory. A unique glory. He did it with the rejection of Jesus Christ on the cross. cross the cross was an instrument of torture 
It was a horrible symbol, ugly and cruel, vile, profane. And yet, through the work of God's power, it has become the unique symbol of beauty and hope and glory and life. And if God can transform the shame of the cross into a symbol of beauty and hope, he can turn your shame, whatever it is, your scars, your limp, your rejection, your betrayal, your body image, whatever it is, into something more glorious than you can ever imagine. If you think about it, that's actually what he was doing with this widow. God took her oil jar and her flower jar, no doubt a symbol of unique shame for a widow because chances are those jars were smaller than anyone else's and emptier. And yet God took those symbols of her shame and made it her glory by providing miraculously through them. Her poverty became her ability to provide as she allowed God to provide through her. And the death of her son became her unique glory as she saw God turn every part of her shame on its head. So if you are here this evening and you are struggling deeply with shame, what present shame do you presently have that is defeating you that God will turn on its head? How might God bring unique glory through your shame. Consider how you might pray toward that end. And if you don't have the faith, I ask friends of you who know someone who's struggling with shame, pray for that person, that God would take that unique area of shame and turn it into a unique area of glory where they experience God's redemption. And when he does, you'll be able to proclaim like the widow did at the end, now I know Elijah, that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth. God, we thank you that you are a God who tenderly takes initiative with the shamed. That you are a God who does not leave us in our shame, whether it's shame that we bring upon ourselves, shame that others bring upon us, or just the shame of living in a broken world. Whatever its source, God, you have the power to redeem it, to change it. We see hints of that in the story of Elijah. We see clearer, we have a clear understanding of it in the cross. God, give us gospel-oriented eyes to see how you deal with our shame, how you interrupt it, and how you ultimately defeat it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.